This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, how is fatherhood going? Oh, it's going. Uh, Obviously, it's take your daughter to work day or take your daughter to podcast day. So she is, of course, in the studio being quite adorable. She's often there, and if you listen in episodes very closely every once in a while, you can hear in the background of an episode. I know. We, we talked about having uh, some sort of um, contest in which we give prizes for the first person to pick out a pilot. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think Andrew Swan is a, a friend of a podcast. Andrew Swan is doing quite well. Well, I'm just going to say this from an outsider's perspective, and I mean that from like a distant Skype perspective, but you seem like uh, a very caring and good father. Well, thanks. I do try. She's great. I see how you take care of her during the podcast and seem to really be attentive <laughs> to her needs. And it, it's it's a small thing. Men should always have, you know, a lot of responsibility in parenting. But that hasn't always been the case historically. That's true. That's true. I know when I decided or my wife and I talked about doing uh, paternity leave, that was um, a lot of my friends were very concerned. They had done, you know, a week or a few days. And so I was taking, you know, the full well, I took more than 40 days. Uh, and it was just kind of amazing. I feel like it was I feel like it was some of the best times. It was really hard coming back. I was one of those dads, obviously, who went to the library because they had like, you know, the, the read-along things. Yeah. And one of my favorite things, I love looking for books because I want to make sure that she has like strong, you know, female role models. And so this book is one of my favorites. It's called Shaking Things Up, 14 Women Who Changed the World. Cool. And it's great because I also like things that are written in verse. And so it has some like some things written in verse about some well, woman, um, and the illustrations are just kind of gorgeous. And so, yeah, I get very excited whenever, whenever new books come. Brad Meltzer, who I really enjoy, wrote a book, Heroes for My Daughter. My wife got me a book, uh, Hidden Figures, <laughs> based on the, the, the four women who, obviously, if you've seen the movie, which is fantastic, which is based in real life. Um, and then, oh, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Mm-hmm. I try to read them to her every now and then, just because, again, I kind of want her to be I don't know. I feel like in school, we talk so much about famous guys that I want her to, you know, realize that there are, I mean, they're strong, really amazing women that she should be exposed to. And so I feel like that's part of my job. Absolutely. And for those that could not see this, which pretty much is our entire audience, Michael was like pulling out all the books out of his library and telling me about that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Right now, you and I are both kind of really into picture books. You know, I'm back teaching elementary social studies methods. And so I've just been like, or like searching for books that have, you know, accurate, representative, inclusive, empowering, you know, representations of, you know, diverse groups of people, including, you know, strong women, I think is one right. of those groups too. And so it's kind of been fun. I did also get uh, Jingle Dancer that Debbie Reese from, um, I forget episode, what episode that was, uh, uh, but she was talking about Native American literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I did get that based upon her suggestion way back when. Yeah, it's a great one. I use that in my class because, and she talked about the importance of, of showing representations of um, indigenous peoples today 
and that book does a great job and it's it centers around indigenous women yeah yeah it's very cool well i think you know we've there's a lot of cultural shifts i think uh in our society you know whether you think about the last 20 years the rise of uh, and changes for lgbtq rights in the country um or more recently you think about me too movements um, some some of the fights against sexual assault and sexual discrimination that happened right. in the workplace, and so there's really been it's a it's a topic that I think we need to make sure that we're addressing not just in the present but historically, right? Yeah, uh, and um, and, yeah, and Violet we, and Violet agrees, right? Violet definitely agrees wholeheartedly, uh, which is always great. Thank you very much for those of you playing along. That was the time that she spoke up in this episode. So there you go. We do have a tremendous guest today that we'll be examining, well, the issue of women in social studies. Why don't we introduce Marty Schmeichel from the University of Georgia, I'll bring her into the podcast. Marty, how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. You're in Georgia, which is very exciting. Athens, Georgia, the home of? The national champion runner-up Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> See, I was, I was still thinking REM. Uh, Marty. <laughs> Sorry. Marty, and you know you guys beat you beat my alma mater in the in the semifinals. So thank you for yes. starting that that way. <laughs> that was a grand victory. I'm actually not that big of a football fan, so I don't even know why I brought that up. But when everyone when anyone <laughs> says Athens, Georgia, home of whatever, Georgia football usually is what follows that up. Telling us a little bit about your background in education. Who is Marty Schmeichel? That's a good question. Well, I am originally from Nebraska and went to the University of Nebraska and really didn't come to teaching until it was it was my second or third career, really. So I have an undergraduate degree in international affairs and from the University of Nebraska, the center of all cosmopolitan activities. And then I actually worked in higher education. I worked in the Office of Admissions at Nebraska. But went back to graduate school while I was there and started out in anthropology and then somehow just kind of stumbled onto feeling like college was almost too late to catch kids in the process in terms of making sure that everyone had equal access to educational opportunities. So at that point, I decided to become a secondary teacher. And I think my first year of teaching, I was 30. So um, and had already had a couple of other professions before then. So um, I kind of came to it late. I didn't go through a traditional certification route. But when I was deciding, trying to decide what I was going to do, I had one year left in my teacher certification program. So I basically had all the classes up until methods and curriculum and student teaching. And that summer, I kind of decided on a lark to just apply for a couple different things that wouldn't require me finishing that program. And I applied to TFA and was accepted. This was in the early days of TFA, um, Teach for America. And then I also applied to work, be a social studies teacher at a charter school in Arizona. And I also got that, I got that position. So I had to choose between going to TFA in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or going to Phoenix, Arizona to be a social studies teacher. Um, What did you pick? I went to Phoenix. So I went and worked at a charter school um, and started teaching there um, with no teacher education preparation, which is one of the reasons I'm such a huge advocate for it now, because it was really very difficult to teach without 
ever having been in a methods class or having been mentored through a student teaching semester. Um, but I really was surrounded by some great people at Arizona School for the Arts in Phoenix, and they taught me how to teach. My students taught me how to teach enough, well enough, I guess. I got through, I was a social studies teacher for three years, ninth, 10th, and 11th grade. Uh, and then I became the assistant principal at that school. So I did that for five years in Phoenix. And then we decided to move to Georgia, as one does at some point in their life, ponder moving to the South. Um, I'm kind of joking. People thought we were talking <laughs> moving to Mars or something when we said we were going to move to Georgia. But I came to Georgia and then had another little mini career in college administration again here before I decided to go back to school and get a master's in social studies. And that led immediately after to a map to a PhD in social studies. So, and then I got a job here. So I've been here now for a while, but I didn't take the more most traditional path towards either becoming a teacher educator or a teacher in the first place. Sometimes there's windy paths. That's right. Very windy. I also didn't become a teacher until I was 29. I worked for AmeriCorps for a while. Yeah. Um, which is good times. But yeah. I did go through a teacher education program, which was phenomenally helpful. Yes, I would imagine it would be. <laughs> I always tell my students that it is. So. I hope so. That's that's kind of how you know I have a job. So. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, so what's kind of been your passion in your work throughout your career? I didn't start off thinking that I was going to talk about gender, but about halfway through my PhD program, I kind of realized that gender was affecting my experience, even as a doctoral student, in ways that, at least up until that point, I had been unable to recognize. So um, once I decided to talk about women in social studies, my early, all of my early work just kind of took off from there. But, you know, I think the first class I took on gender here at, at UGA when I was a master's student, I'm pretty sure I wrote, I, I firmly expressed that gender didn't play a role in American women's lives anymore. Equity had been achieved. And the paper I wrote, I think, was a pretty impassioned call for single-sex schools. And so that shows, I think, I wouldn't make any of those assertions anymore. But up until that point, I hadn't really thought about gender. I think a lot of people don't in, in 2017, 2018, that's what the year we're in now, um, that we've kind of become conditioned to think that gender inequity is something in the past and that women have achieved parity in so many ways. And, and so it's maybe something that our mothers were concerned about and our grandmothers, but it isn't something that we really have to think about anymore. Um, but I don't feel that way. Any, any longer. The recent events have, have kind of brought gender back to the, the forefront of conversation. Of course, people have always been talking about it. And there's been a lot of women who've been, uh, and feminists in particular, who've been, you know, bringing up issues of gender inequity. But, you know, recently, the first thing, this is also Women's History Month, but at the same time as that, you know, the Me Too movement has gained a lot of steam, Time's Up movement to, you know, kind of end gender uh, and sexual discrimination and assault and dealing with a lot of those issues, those have become so prominent. What what kind of role do you think education plays in these movements? Because I feel like I don't, I haven't heard them discussed much in the educational context. Yeah, I don't know. I can only really talk about social studies in particular because that's my area. But 
it's hard to see how what is happening in social studies in terms of thinking about women's and women ex experiences are contributing to those movements at all. That it's just not a topic that's addressed often. And in much of my work, I've been talking about when it does get addressed, at least in the lesson plans that we give teachers to use, it's not addressed very well. One of the things that I pointed to in one of the articles that I've written about this is that in Hillary Clinton said in a, a speech in 2011, where she was addressing international women's economic group, that we have perhaps fallen into the trap of, and I'm obviously going to be paraphrasing, seeing any kind of progress as success. And I, that was really helpful for me thinking about what it has happened in terms of women getting included in the curriculum. It is obviously more present than it would have been 25 years ago. There's no question about that, that um, important women and women's movement, the suffrage movement, et cetera, is often included in the curriculum. But if it's not being done in a way that helps people think more in more complex ways about gender and gender inequity, then that's not really success. The goals for including women aren't really being achieved with the ways that we see them mentioned today. Marty, you wrote an article in TRSE Theory and Research in Social Education called Skirting Around Critical Feminist Rationale for Teaching Women in Social Studies. First of all, congratulations for getting published. That is fantastic. Thank you. I, I thought maybe you were congratulating me on the clever title. It is I a clever, yeah. I actually was going to. I was really, we had talked about this earlier. I thought the title was fantastic. And oftentimes <laughs> I don't like titles, but yours is amazing. Yeah, it's one of my talents, actually. It's kind of a side <laughs> business. I should start See, charging people. That's what we were, we were talking about that. I don't know what episode that was, but Michael thinks people should hire him out to write their titles for papers. Yes, yeah. But now we're in competition or we can collaborate because this is a work of beauty. <laughs> it is just amazing. Do you mind telling us about your article? Because we would love to learn more. Well, that article came out of my dissertation, which um, was basically a study of the ways that women are represented in social studies education. So up until that point, and really even now, there's been a lot of research talking about how women are absent, but really building on that, that idea that Clinton talked about in the 2011 speeches, I wanted to really think about how women have been included and to think about whether or not the ways that we talk about including women are achieving the kind of transformative revolutionary aims that feminists had back in the 60s and 70s when they were clamoring for the inclusion of women in the social sciences. So I wound up doing a study that looked at lesson plans from the major social studies journals, social education, um, middle social studies and the young learner, a handful of others that are really aimed at social studies practitioners and pulling out every lesson that addressed women or women's issues in a significant way. And I think I looked over about a 10-year span, 10-ish year span, and there were only 16. So there's a start in terms of there was really very limited, sustained, comprehensive attention to women's issues in the kinds of materials that academics develop for practitioners and suggest as kind of best practices that we would expect to see in those kinds of publications. The flip side of having only 16 lessons is that makes it much easier to study. So if there had been hundreds, that would have actually been very difficult. It was 16. It was, it was a, 
a group that I could kind of wrap my mind around what was in those lessons. And so I looked at the ways that women were positioned, what kind of notions of gender systems were invoked, and whether or not if, if someone followed the letter of those lesson plans, what kind of thinking it might generate for students in a classroom. So I didn't look at classrooms, but really just looked at the lessons themselves to see what kind of understandings of women that they built on and then encouraged teachers to use in their lessons. And so what I found was that in general, we hadn't really progressed substantially beyond an add women and stir approach. And Add Women and Stir is a way of thinking about including gender that feminists started critiquing in the 90s and probably most famously with an article by Nell Noddings in 2001 um, that talked about the ways that women are being included in history is basically just adding some names of famous women in. Um, And so, you know, Betsy Ross gets added to the elementary social studies standards. Molly Pitcher for some reason. Right, right. And, you know, states... each state tends to have a couple of famous women that they also include. And we certainly have that here in Georgia as well, but that add women and stir approach has been critiqued as really not changing the narrative whatsoever. It's basically fitting women into the traditional stories about what men have done and the important, you know, wars and presidents and et cetera, and just throwing, throwing a couple women into the story, but not changing the story. Yeah, and it, we've had this discussion on a number of podcasts that this happens with numerous groups who tend to be marginalized historically. We don't actually tell the story from their perspective or what they were doing. We just throw them into what kind of the larger movement, oftentimes surrounding in U.S. history, white men that's moving, that considered to be moving forward. Is that kind of right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the other additional problems by focusing on individual women is is the same critique that many of us have of for example, what happens in elementary social studies is just adding them to a list of exceptional individuals kind of extracts them entirely from the social movements that made it possible for them to do what they did. And that, that unfortunately is really common for women, in, women historical figures in particular, that they've just been dropped in. Where in maybe second grade elementary social studies standards, we have a list of 15 exceptional individuals that have to be covered, maybe two or three are African-American men, maybe one or two are are white women. Even in the secondary standards, there tends to be a little bit more development of the themes and concepts, or at least historical periods in those kinds of standards, especially in comparison to elementary social studies standards, which are just kind of a list of names and concepts to be taught. But even in the secondary standards, women are dropped in in that way. So it'll be a unit for, let's go back to Betsy Ross, a unit on the American Revolution, and then a mention of some exceptional woman's achievements, especially if she's local to the region or the state, that need to be addressed. So the problem that this creates is that when women are dropped in in that way, not only does it separate them from the social movements that made their exceptionalism possible, but what's never introduced is thinking more broadly about gender. This is really very similar to what some of your recent speakers about Asian Americans and African Americans have talked about, that the purpose for one of the really important things about 
including different voices, is to acknowledge these systems in which we're, we're all embedded, both now and in the past, and to think about systems of racism and, and sexism that have created the circumstances either in the past or today that are worthy of considering. So when one of the things that I found in the lessons that I analyzed in my study was that when women were mentioned, gender was rarely acknowledged. This woman did this in this time, but the fact that she was a woman was not really relevant. So if we're going to look at, for example, primary documents from that were generated during the communist revolution in China, and they're all about women. They're written by women, women talking about their experiences in a variety of different contexts. This is one of the lessons I'm thinking about in particular. What we also have to draw attention to is thinking about how gender shaped these individuals' experiences. It's not enough just to have a woman's story, but to try to think about how being a woman in that time, what that meant to her, what opportunities it provided, what constraints it provided, and how her story makes sense in terms of the gender system that was present in the time, and not just telling her story. When I think about the roles of women, historically, I also then think about the ways in which men often were oppressive to women and were their oppressors. And I don't know if we, we do enough of teaching about how they contributed to the limitations on women. It seems like we always just talk about activists who are making changes, but we never talk about who's holding them back and who they're fighting against beyond just kind of these shadowy figures that are in the distance. And it doesn't allow us to talk about like the problems with masculinity and how manhood was defined and why defined in ways that had to be felt superior to um, women and, and have a different social status. Do Is part of that being able to address that side of it too? Or would that be too much centering men as part of the story when we want to spend focus on, on women's stories? Really powerful potential of including women is to talk about gender, not just to talk about women. So I think that that perspective is actually incredibly important. And it is one of the things that I also found in my analysis of those lesson plans was entirely lost. So even in lessons that would acknowledge that women's life opportunities were hampered because of their gender, that they, they didn't have a full range of choices available to them, it was never point, patriarchy was never meant. <laughs> so it's not dissimilar, although it's not identical, but it's not completely dissimilar to what we talk about in terms of, we talk about slaves, but never talk about slave owners. And we, unfortunately, we rarely talk about slaves, even in American history, but slave owners are a part of that narrative. And in this is somewhat similar in that when we talk about why women had to fight for their rights, it is important to discuss the entire gender system that was in place at that point, and not just that women were struggling to work towards equality. By just dropping women into the story, we're not actually changing, we're not actually examining like the the structure in which that they're, uh, that women are, are kept down. Um, right. And so part of the, your argument is that we need to not just shift just who we teach, but also how we teach and what we are teaching. Absolutely. So not just including women, but including women in critical ways, ways that help students think about, as Linda Levstick talked about, the relationship between the systems, in this case, gender systems that exist now, and helping students understand that they have a historical context. 
that they didn't just come from nowhere. They're not just the way things have to be, but that when we, we can look in history and see where the origins of what students are able to recognize today as gender inequities, that they have a historical context. A project I've done in gender classes is we've looked at the cult of domesticity characteristics of you know the early 1800s, and we apply those to like modern advertising today in magazines and just mm-hmm. see how, how applicable a lot of them are. Did you find any good lessons? Did you analyze any ones that you thought did a good job? And if not, what do you think a good lesson or a good curriculum around women that focuses on women's histories would look like in schools? There were one or two that explicitly encouraged teachers to create opportunities for students to think critically about gender inequity and to think about it specifically in terms of what we can recognize in the world right now. One of the interesting things I think about where the, the really limited number of cr- more critically oriented lesson plans came from, they weren't in, in American history. So one was in geography, which perhaps has more license to think about the topics we talk about in geography and from a variety of perspectives, as opposed to like the American history canon where it's so established that what we have, you know, if you teach the war of 1812, you've got to include X, Y, and Z for it to make sense. It it perhaps wasn't surprising that it came from a field outside history. Another thing that was somewhat interesting was that the other two examples, I think came from non-American context. So students were being encouraged to think about inequality of women in other places, but not in the United States. So It is, isn't it? So that's, you know, points to, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but somehow that thinking about it in our, in our own American context was not something that the lesson plan writers were encouraging. And like that really ties into a lot of things we know about social studies teacher and the avoidance of addressing controversial issues or being concerned that they're not going to be able to handle how their students are going to react. They're just not taking up certain issues. And that that's certainly the case for this as well in terms of what I suspect is preventing people from addressing gender in a critical way. But another reason for that is that you have to be someone who has, who believes that gender inequity exists <laughs> and that it's something that is something can be pushed back against through social studies education. And it's not clear that that's necessarily a widely shared viewpoint amongst social studies teachers. So I was just talking to a student who was thinking about doing a doctoral study about this issue in terms of what, what kind of person do you have to be to really actively encourage a critique of sexism and classism and racism? Like there's a, a certain kind of person who wants to do that work. But it would be really ignorant for us to think that all social studies teachers share that commitment. But one of the other reasons that really led me to the study is a a demonstration lesson I saw in a student teacher's classroom. He was someone who really wanted to address gender well and in a rich way. And so he created this gender equity lesson where he started off by having students read quotes about, this was a while ago, so it was Palin and Clinton in the 2008 election. 
And so he just pulled a bunch of media quotes that, you know, just said really horrible things about both of these women. And he gave the students the quotes, the instruction was to respond to, like, you know, what response do you have to these? It was a silent discussion. So uh, it happened to be a lesson when I was observing and it went off the rails. <laughs> students confirmed a lot of really problematic agreements with quotes he had selected to be so saying things like, you know, Hillary can't keep a man. How can she be president? You know, there's just something oh, no. that men can do better than women. So that was a real eye opener, I think, for both of us, that in order to have constructive conversations about these issues like gender, that it's really important to take a very structured approach. And one of the things that I talked about, actually, we have an article in social education that's a lesson on including women in the curriculum in a, gen in a critical way. It's called, Why Has There Never Been a U.S. Woman President? And it was published in 2016 prior to the last election. But in that article, we talk about that gender issues, like race and class issues, are different than other things that we talk about in social studies in terms that it's not, we're never introducing students to those understandings for the first time. So while the article of confederation might be something that we introduce to them, something they've never heard before, they know a lot about gender before they even walk into our classrooms. They know a lot about race. They know a lot about class. And they've not learned it from us, but they have a lot of understandings about those categories and what they mean in people's lives that we have to take into consideration before we start talking about them in our classroom. Marty, one thing that seems to be important is being able to name that we're willing to do this work. And I see a, I don't see many men willing to call themselves either feminists or feminist allies, if you prefer. And I think that is important because you're basically saying that, you know, you're advocating and concerned for gender equity and willing to take stands for that. And I think as teachers, it means developing lessons, ensuring in your school and classroom, you have those conversations. I know I taught high school and there was a lot of discussions around gender and the names that were thrown around our school and things like that, that just we had to talk about with just teachable moments about gender in our school. And so um, I would think that just even tending to your environment would be part of this this journey and making a more equitable gender society. Yes, I would agree. I think it's not, this isn't going to be the kind of thing that someone just stumbles into doing well. Like it has to be something that you set out to do. And again, that's going to be based on what you think is important. It's difficult though, as you, as you mentioned, there are a lot of women who don't want to say that they're feminists, you know, so it's just become something that has become this image of bra burning, man hating, you know, whatever, like everyone thinks that they know what a feminist is and it's almost always a really negative impression. Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely claim being a feminist. Like if there were cards to carry, I would be a card carrying feminist. <laughs> I, I, one of the things that I've said is people shy away from that and really the consequences of that. And so, but teachers who are concerned about equity more broadly, which doesn't necessarily come with those kind of loaded terms of, you know, aligning yourself with what's seen as an extreme theoretical position. From my perspective, part of it is for people like us in academia to support that and to, especially for teacher educators, to help teachers learn the skills to be able to facilitate those kinds of potentially contentious conversations in a classroom and to help them think about framing 
in in this case specifically including women in the curriculum in ways that have a chance to really help students hold up a mirror to their own their school school community the communities that they live in society at large and to try to see these things as not the result of individual choices but really very pervasive systems that make it very difficult for women to achieve equity in ways in the most powerful places in our society like politics and business. That isn't to say that that doesn't mean positioning women as victims or not acknowledging how much things have changed, but really kind of pointing to how much further we have to go. I think that's a perfect statement to kind of finish on. You really summarized yeah. it well. Okay, well, when's the trivia part? Oh, yeah. Um, name all the yeah. Name all the famous women in history. Go. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. I don't. I don't focus on exceptional women. I think <laughs> about women as a group, which is something to think about. Even Michael, as I was seeing you hold up those books, like there's nothing wrong. Yeah. Drawing attention to really important women, but as you talk with your daughter about those things over the coming years, or Dan, as you talk about with your elementary method students, is about trying to think about why their achievement was exceptional. And part of that is because it was really hard to be a woman at that time for whatever reason. Sometimes when we had a podcast, I feel like there's so much stuff that I just need to think about and really reflect on my own teaching. And I feel like with this, like that's one of those, I don't, as for like clear takeaways, my clear takeaway from our discussion is that I need to do a lot of thinking about how I structure discussion how I structure inclusion in my students' lives. And yeah, you're right, my daughter's life. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you. No problem. Thank you. So Marty Schmeichel, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Schmeichel, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at CyberMarty, and you can email me at marty at uga.edu. You also cool. came up with a good Twitter handle. You're, you're full of uh, good labeling. You could have been like a brander in a different life. I probably spent a little bit too much time thinking about that kind of stuff. So thank <laughs> you for drawing attention to that. That's why I'm 42 Think Deep because I agonized so much about my Twitter handle <laughs> that someone said you should just be like overthinker. And I was like, oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 42 Think Deep. And so that's how I... That. I can relate to that. My name's at Dan Kretka. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's handy. Dr. Schmeichel, thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed the discussion, and we certainly hope to continue it on Twitter, online, and in just other spaces. Great. Thank you. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creating an education, or you just want to chat about an episode, or life in general, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever your podcasting needs are met. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Signing off.